0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Good afternoon, everybody. I just wanted to say welcome to you all. Um, I know that we have um, some visitors and lots of members of staff here. My name's Jill Grimshaw. I'm the one of the team in Cambridge Assessment Network, which organises these seminars. This is the second in a series of perspectives that we've started this year, looking at different angles on assessment from people within the organisation. So I'm very pleased to say today is uh, the turn of Clara and Merrick from OCR, um, who are going to talk um, about um, exams, I think. Thank you for that, uh, Jill. Okay, um, Merrick, who looks after 14 to 19 qualifications uh, in OCR, and myself, we're going to look at uh, GCSE today. And uh, somebody said to us very early in the stage of planning, well, that sounds riveting, right, in terms of a topic. So we've taken a particular stance um, in terms of the way that we're going to look at uh, GCSE over time. And I hope that you'll find it... um, reasonably light-hearted but also informative view. So we're going to look at GCSE and we're going to look at it from the perspective of the evolution of a a qualification. Um, And you can see he's got his GCSE certificate. And we're going to look at it from the past, the present. And if we can, given that it's really difficult at this particular point in time, with, you know, the election and all the rest of it. But just have a little insight, if we can, into what we think the future might hold for the GCSE. So we're going to start off with the origins of a species, where it came from. We're going to look at what it's emerged into, what it is today. Um, And you're probably aware, or most of you are probably aware, that the GCSEs have just... Uh, recently undergone some fundamental changes in terms of the the ways that they are assessed and the way that they are put together and we'd like to share those with you to look at the rationale for those changes and also to share what we think is the impact of those changes and interestingly just talking to Andrew you know um, apparently there's going to be an evaluation of them so we'll very much look forward to that in due course Um, And to think and try and get some evidence about what the perceptions are, how people view GCSEs in this day and age, and where we think they might be going in the future. So, I suppose the central question, and we'll return to this, is has the GCSE evolved into something that is no longer fit for purpose And we ask you to just hold that question. Um, And and hopefully what we say during the presentation will help to inform that uh, debate. But to start, here he is. You'll see quite a lot of this um, this little chap as we we move through the origins of our species. Um, But we're going to start way back, right? Way back when there were really only two routes through education. There was an academic route and what was called a technical route. And it was when O-levels were introduced in 1951. And you can see that. Originally, you can see some of the features of them, but originally, these qualifications, they were only designed at best for the top 20%. ...of pupils in the country. Um, in 1958, only 13% of school leavers got 5G at uh, five O-levels as they were then. So they were offered as um, linear, two-year programmes, exam-based. You had to be, originally, you had to be 16 to be able to take an O-level. That was um, not hugely popular, but it, it was one of the requirements... Um, and you can see there, they were graded. The, understanding the grading system has been quite... It, originally, they started out as pass and fail. They then went to a grading system of one to nine, and then they went from A to U, OK? And many people, even today, it's interesting when you trace through, actually, the benchmarking that takes place of back to these these O-levels. So they've been really important in 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 terms of forming what, uh, what has come about. And I'm going to share this with you. I have to put my glasses on, so forgive me for this. But when, I, when we were doing the research, it was interesting to find that actually, dare we say, some of the issues that we deal with every day, and probably many of you do, they were still dealing with in 1950. This is from... Uh, this is 1951. they just started to run O-levels. The Cambridge Local Examination Syndicate, wonder who that is, right, has um, recently issued a table of percentage results for the, the general certificate in the summer of nineteen fifty-one. And the results at ordinary level show the performances of boys and girls separately. And a comparison of them a comparison of them is startling. In English literature, for instance. 75.6% of the girls passed, but only 547 of the boys. Does this sound familiar? Right. Um, the superiority of girls' results is marked in nearly every subject, including science papers as physics and general science. And if we divide the total number of passes by the total number of scripts in each case, we find that 626 of the girls successful, as contrasted with only 54.4% of the boys. Then goes on a little bit about A-levels and things and saying it would be interesting if this is borne out in f- further study. But it says it would be interesting to know of teachers in mixed schools whether the apparent superiority of girls as examination candidates accords with their experience. If it is generally true, what is the explanation? Superior intelligence? Greater conscientiousness? Better teaching? And does it last? I thought that was lovely. um, Okay, so perhaps some of these things do not mean. Perhaps we're working on common ground here, but I thought that was just interesting. So we've got O levels. At the time, because they increased the the uh, um, leaving age at school, what you tended to have was that there were more students staying on, and as I say, because these were very exclusive, there was a desire to have a different level of certification um, for students who were attending different types of schools. So many of you would know, love, remember, or perhaps have heard of vaguely, uh, the certificates in secondary education uh, that were introduced in the mid-1960s. And the idea was very much that this was about the recognition of student achievement, I think it's fair to say. You can see that they were offered on a regional basis uh, by 14 awarding bodies. There was very much a, uh, an involvement of the LEAs, the, the local education authorities, because what they wanted to do was to be able to give some level of recognition to uh, to, to student achievement and, and uh, students leaving school. And you can see there that they were they were offered in three modes, um, and I. I remember everybody talking about the popularity of mode 3 because that was when really teacher assessment was to you not know I mean at its ascendancy but mode 1 was where you had a syllabus that was set by the board and the exams were set by the board mode 2 was where there was a school syllabus but the board set the exams and mode 3 which did become really popular was where the school could set the syllabus and the schools could set and mark the exam uh, and then they were moderated, normally on a, on a regional basis by the by the board. Interestingly, the point at the bottom, if you got a grade one CSE, it equated to an O level, and we'll find this as a continuous theme, this this recognition that goes back to. But how does this standard equate to the one that went before? And and in many ways, critics of CSE would say actually they devalued themselves instantly by, in terms of um, making that classification because in, some, in many instances they were perhaps seen as being somehow second rate. Do you know what I mean? They were somehow seen as being lower than the traditional O level. Um, and that, I think, stayed with them. OK, so... Because we had a plethora of qualifications, and of course, this doesn't relate to today, I said we're going to come across some uh, different uh, themes that keep reoccurring. The minute you get multiple examinations, different awarding standards, different criteria, you end up with lots of concern, right, amongst the population at large and employers saying, I'm really worried about the variety of awards, we've got too many how do we articulate the standards between one and another? How do we ensure things like consistency and comparability, particularly when we've got, in this instance, a plethora of awarding organisations? How actually do we make sense of this, dare one say, spaghetti of qualifications? And and we've we've perhaps heard that um, as a terminology as well in more recent times. So there was a There was a desire for some consistency, I think it's fair to say. Uh, And what started to emerge, there was a lot of research done about how we could equate these things. And the merger was eventually proposed in 1979 by a Labour government. Um, Unusually, it was uh, opposed by the opposition at the time and then subsequently adopted by the following (laughs) Conservative government, in 1986 um, when Sir Keith Joseph made the announcement and what he said was we're going to have a, a coming together of O-levels and C, CSEs. And he was quite clear about what the purpose of that single qualification was going to be. And he said, I can offer an account of what the minimum level to be attained by, the, by 16 Uh, By 80 to 90% of pupils, so that's where he was aiming this, 80 to 90% of the pupils, um, in a few areas of the the curriculum. And I repeat that I'm talking about a minimum level. In English, pupils should uh, and would need to demonstrate that they are attentive listeners and confident speakers and that they can read straightforward written information ...and pass it on without loss of meaning... ...and that they can say clearly what their own views are. So it was quite clear how he, if you like, articulated this uh, general certificate. So there we are. We have an O-level and a CSE... ...which gave rise to a GCSE. So what were the features of of the GCSE? Well, you can see there, even in those early stages... They, were re- they revolved around some specification of general and subject criteria. So they weren't in, in free fall. They were two-year, generally, two-year linear programmes. Uh, there was a coursework element, and there'd been a coursework element in, in CSE. Less teacher assessment than we'd had um, previously. And here we go again. This top three GCSE grades were equivalent to the old O-level, right? Let's, let's benchmark it back to the one that we knew, loved, and was, do you know what I mean, generally recognised. And actually, um, if you look at the implication of that recognition of an A to C, we'll see that that ha- comes through time and time again as a different sort of standard, i.e. it became equivalent to the past. Uh, it was tiered, or they were tiered, uh, Foundation, Intermediate and Higher, and I think maths only gave went to two-tiering in 2006. Uh, with the, yeah, with the awards in 2008. Yeah. So oh, all right, up, so... Up to an including three Yeah. So that actually, do not mean, has been a feature that has um, stayed around. And uh, graded A to G, A starter G uh, from 1994. Now, many would think, I suppose there might be a perception that actually, if you're a student at school, you'd feel, oh, really, I've got to do my GCSEs. I think what we need to bear in mind is that, although they're very popular and they're well-known, they do sit alongside a a plethora of other Level 2 qualifications. Um, And it's sometimes hard to perhaps appreciate that they're not actually compulsory. What's compulsory is the study at key stage four that's the compulsory element and what students need to to, do mean, uh, to, to uh, learn at okay. that level but if we look at the standing right universities still require um generally students to have studied and passed grades a to c uh, maths and english right before they apply Five GCSEs, grades A to C, are often the, uh, the gateway, if you like, to sixth form, to sixth form studies. Five uh, A, uh, GCSEs, A star to C, are the benchmarks now in terms of key performance indicators, both for schools and, and for teachers. So the whole mechanism has geared itself quite closely around the GCSE and the grading within that. Okay, just for completeness, there are lots, you'll hear lots of different types of GCSE, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but it's just useful to run through them because people say, well, what was a vocational and what was applied? Um, so we did have VGCSEs that were in, introduced in 2000. Uh, they replaced the GMVQs, uh, and they were three-unit awards, They then went on, and in a lot of instances, um, in 2004, the term vocational then became applied. um, And a lot of them were recognised as double awards. They were the equivalent of two GCSEs. We've also got international GCSEs, offered obviously by uh, our sister organisation, CIE, can see there 127 countries. They actually offer, I think there's over 70 available in the UK. 16 are, are currently listed on Endac, and there's an application uh, for, for them to be funded and they're very popular in terms of they are linear assessment and the coursework option is is is, is, is optional. Um, and there has been a huge increase in in. Demand for them by the independent sector, and there's also short course GCSEs, which are little half GCSEs. They're recognised as half. They're two units, only available in some subjects, so they're not available um, all over the place. Okay, so that's, if you like, a sort of a roundup of GCSEs and, and where we are. If we look at them today and where they sit. In 2008, six million GCSEs were awarded. They're available in over 40 subjects. They now form one of the government's pathways. The government has recognised four pathways. Uh, GCSE and A level is one of those, Uh, diploma is another, apprenticeships, and then there's an overarching foundation learning tier underpinning that. They're now generally uh, unitised, uh, of a maximum of four units. And as I say, we have been through significant change. They've been amended for first <coughs> teaching in 2009. Mass English and ICT are a little bit out of sync on that. They're on a different timeline uh, in 2010. I think it's fair to say that over time, you know, if we look back from where they've come from and where we are today... There's been various calls um, to have them strengthened, to have them abolished, to have them retained and to redefine their purpose over the uh, the time frame. So in 2002, um, DFES did a consultation when they thought actually, is it about school leaving it isn't really about school leaving because they had so many students who were staying on in the educational system. And therefore they said, well, perhaps GCSEs are more of a progress check. They're more about what stage you're at rather than what age you're at. So there was a a discussion about stage, not age. Um, Tom Linson, in his, do not mean, uh, proposition around the diploma, would have... uh, Advocated a far broader programme of learning. Um, and they are offered, as I say, alongside a range of level one and level two qualifications. So they're very successful if we measure it in those terms. And if we look at it today, if we think back to where we were originally coming from, uh, they are now very much aimed at you know, the target 60% of 16-year-olds are expected to achieve the equivalent of, of five GCSEs. And the proportion that are, in, that are achieving is increasing. Uh, the reason that we make the distinction there is that more recently, you will note that actually the five GCSEs as a measure has got to include um, English and maths, and that has now become... Uh, a requirement. So what we've got is a qualification emerging over time that's successful in terms of people's levels of achievement that has been, if you like, evolving and changing. And what I'd like to do now is to pass over to Merrick, who will take you through what some of the changes have been, perhaps asking Are they really very different from where we started from? And then we'll come back and and perhaps revisit what the impact has been. So, over to you. Thank you very much.
1: Good afternoon. Um, I think uh, my experience of uh, all these qualifications has been very practical. I seem to have grown up with them most of my adult life. I remember taking O-Levels. I certainly remember some of my friends at school uh, taking CSEs as well. I later went on to teaching, and I was in teaching when CSEs and O-Levels were phased out and GCSE was introduced. Uh, I remember grants for textbooks for GCSEs being introduced for the first time to schools, Uh, and the the uproar it caused, and the retraining. I I can remember things like the national curriculum being introduced, etc. And obviously in my present job, I'm very much in the engine house of what we do in producing the qualifications and in assessing the qualifications. So I'm well aware of what happens in centres and the feedback we get from there. So mine is a kind of very practical perception uh, of what's going on. I'm going to look at some of the changes of the the, the most recent iteration of GCSE. Uh, And I'm going to start off with some fairly obvious ones. I mean, the, the first one is that over the period of any specification, the content dates, and examples of that are quite simple. If I look at an ICT specification, we have current ICT specifications that talk about floppy disks, they talk about CD-ROMs, uh, they ignore things like social networking, DVDs, Blu-ray, anything like that. We have technology syllabuses that uh, don't have things in about smart materials, uh, didn't mention sustainability, uh, and things like that. So, obviously, there is a need over time to update the content of specifications. It's very difficult to write a specification that is, uh, will wear with time and doesn't need updating. Because if you leave the content vague so that centres can fill it in, you just put EG, and then ask questions about it, you obviously come back and say, well, that wasn't in the specification. You know, we, we didn't prepare on that. So, that, that's a kind of practical aspect. We've got coursework replacing replaced by controlled assessment. We had a kind of early form of controlled assessment a little while ago on the first science specs which came in, but now obviously we've got this major change which is controlled assessment, which is probably going to have one of the largest impacts on secondary schools uh, for some time. But there'll be more about that in a in a moment too. Let's have a look why controlled assessment came in. There's a, a general unease about coursework. And you see some of the headlines. You, you've seen these yourself. Um, you know, coursework is to be scrapped. Most GCSE examinations, in response to fears that it's students to copy from the internet or get their teachers, siblings, or parents to complete projects on. Perhaps I can ask you a question. Uh, I don't know about the age of the audience. I was going to say um, if you've got teenage children that have actually done GCSEs, how many of you have actually helped them with their coursework, their examination coursework? You know, uh, you'd be honest. Put your hands up. Uh, <laughs> or are you, looking at looking at some of the some of the age of the audience. Perhaps you know when you was doing GCSEs, because you weren't around when were O levels around. Uh, did your parents help you? I'm sure if you answered that honestly, there would be a fair number of you in this audience who actually helped, uh, proofing their, their son's English essay or something like that. Uh, suggesting amendments, obviously, you know, just genuine help, uh, not doing it for them. I actually went walking with a a couple who had a son at the first year of university and they were writing his essays for him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can I just say to you that it actually starts at the opposite end, it starts at Key Stage 2 with SAPS, that you have to help your children with Mm. their Key Stage 2 homework and so it begins there and it doesn't end as you can It's very ago.
1: difficult because there's pressure on teachers <laughs> to make sure that they get the results. Uh, they're, they're obviously, uh, you know, uh, pressured by the, the, the SMT of the school to make sure that the children are, are getting, uh, getting on and getting the qualifications, flexing the league tables, etc. So lots of pressures around. What was the reaction to that? What, what was the, the, the response to that? How do we tighten up on that? Well, the reviewed coursework took place in June 2008. Uh, There was a report from an Ian Colwell, which was commissioned by QCA, which reported on controlled assessment uh, and on uh, increasing the reliability of GCSE coursework and controlled assessment. And it made several recommendations. And it came back with recommendations in three areas of control. It was of a task setting task taking and test task awarding. There was a fourth, actually, which was to do with training, training of teachers for assessment. But That seems to have somehow become a lo- lower priority and being left to the awarding bodies. Obviously, we are concerned about that, but those are the three which are in the subject criteria for control of the content specifications. What does controlled assessment mean in real terms? Obviously, there's a different level of control for different subjects, and I'll come to that in a moment too. Um, So, task setting, for example, at the lowest level of control for task setting, uh, the tasks are chosen by the centre; they decide what the students do. At the highest level of task setting, the tasks are provided by the awarding body, and there are rules about how frequently they're renewed. Uh, and published, and obviously how much they can be contextualised as well by the centre. We make them available uh, on our um, secure network, uh, and they can be downloaded. Other boards send them out by CD-ROM or secure dispatches or whatever. Task-taking. Candidates complete all work under limited supervision. In other words, very much like coursework now, to a certain extent. Uh, The higher end all work under formal supervision, very much like an exam invigilated situation with a teacher sat at the front. So, for example, modern languages at that end on their taking of their tasks. Um, Something like uh, CDT, design technology, or the other subjects. Limited control over the research, they can do the research under limited control, go away, do the research, bring it into the class, but actually when they come down to do the work, uh, then that's under informal supervision, which means the teacher's got to keep an eye on them, making sure they're, they're not cheating in any way. Very difficult for staff to monitor and enforce that. There are lots of other controls in there about word limits and length of time they have to do tasks and... All the work's got to be gathered in. But if you imagine you're an IT teacher, (coughs) how do you stop your students bringing in material which they incorporate into their essays? How do you know that the thing hasn't been prepared and put on a memory stick and brought into the classroom? Very difficult. So lots of issues for for teachers there. (coughs) Task marking. Again, the lowest level, teacher marked and unmoderated or unchecked by the board. We don't have that at GCSE. That's not available as far as I'm aware on any of our GCSEs. At that higher end, it's externally marked. We mark it. So, this refers to kind of portfolios and that sort of materials. Most of our material is teacher marked <coughs> and moderated. So, those are the control levels which are on control assessment. And obviously, as well, there's different. Amounts of controlled assessment in different subjects. It was felt that there was a need to reduce the amount of coursework that was taking place. Thin it out. Get rid of it from specifications where it was inappropriate and leave it only where it's essential. So you've got these three bands. um, So things like religious studies, classical Greek, etc. Have no coursework in them. All external assessment, examination. You've got this middle group and then the groups which you would expect probably. Things like... uh, cdt technology hammer and banging kind of crafts where you want to to see their practical skills over time Uh, things like english english language where they're writing essays and things like that over a longer period in developing the work so quite a list there and it's this area at the bottom where obviously there's the heaviest load on controlled assessment next change which came in originally uh functional skills was designed to be a hurdle work GCSE. So in other words, in order to obtain um, English or Mathematics or ICT uh, A to C, you had to pass at level two functional skills. Now for various reasons that proved a little impractical. Um, The functional skills could be done with any board and obviously you would have to have something like the DAS, which is for the diploma, where you could access other results before you can make that award. So there are practical limitations limitations there. I think they also realised that the number of candidates who actually got or would potentially get functional skills at level two in all three subjects and get five GCSEs was going to be relatively limited and immediately uh, they will be held up in the press as being responsible for lowering standards and uh, education going to pot or whatever. So uh, for Expedient reasons, practical reasons, that idea was ditched and that link was ditched. still exists in the Diploma. It still is a major hurdle to the Diploma, along with other hurdles in the Diploma, uh, which uh, we'll see what happens this summer, perhaps, in the future. But uh, that was the original intention. It's still there in that ICT, English and Maths have to have 50% of the content reflecting the functional skills, functionality. So it's got to be built into that. So by doing those GCSEs, you should be able to, in theory, be prepared for and pass functional skills. Rules. Interesting rules. Every single iteration of GCSE that I've been involved in, and this is the third one, one delivering and two developing, uh, the rules have got more and more complex. If you look at the subject criteria, they expand each time uh, and what you're allowed to do or not allowed to do uh, increases. Obviously, one of the things which is the government or, or politicians have wished to do is control the curriculum. And they do that in two ways. They do that by the national curriculum, saying what has to be taught in programmes of study. They also control it indirectly with the assessment because they say what has got to be assessed in the subject criteria. So they actually are, I suppose, aiming for greater consistency And that's something which we would applaud. We want consistency between awarding bodies, equality of outcome. We want to know what we get when the candidate gets a GCSE. uh, But there may be other reasons as well. Two rules that were brought in were terminal assessment and resets. And I'll go into those in a moment. Um, I've got a little quotation here from a certain Kathleen Tattersall, who was the uh, chair of uh, Ofqual. It's a document which is uh, about a brief history of policies, practices and issues relating to comparability, chapter in a book. And uh, the the quotation is that uh, with every change of the rules, new syllabuses were required more frequently uh, than had ever previously been the case. This had compounded the difficulties of maintaining consistent standards from year to year, with no, no stable benchmark against which to measure cur- curriculum requirements and examination—sorry—to which to measure curriculum requirements and examination standards. Well, I, I hope that Kathleen, in her new job, will actually reduce the number of rules and, and perhaps help us uh, reduce that problem. Terminal assessment: 40% of the assessment must be taken in the final session when the candidate aggregates. Uh, sounds reasonable. Uh, there's a, there's a, a view that um, assessment, which is at the end of the course, obviously is harder for the candidate than assessment taken earlier on. Um, it's not what happens at university or Open University, where you take your units and you stage your assessment. Uh, but there was a view that it was unitising things was too easy, and that we needed to end load the assessment. So 40% must be taken at the end. That has some strange consequences because in order to do that candidates may have to count a lower result to qualify for the 40% for a unit than they would have have done had it not existed as a rule. So if they take the unit twice and the second time was in the final session and got a lower mark, they may still have to use that lower mark because it has to be there to qualify for the 40% of assessment. The Resit rule. They're allowed to resit a unit twice only. Um, they can sit a foundation unit once and then a higher unit once, but they're only allowed two attempts at that unit, uh, not two at foundation, then two at higher. However, if you choose to aggregate at short course on your way to the GCSE, you're allowed another two attempts at it. So it gets a little confusing. So you can have two candidates who are doing the GC- GCSE in the last summer. Uh, one has had four attempts at the unit, and one's had two attempts. Whatever happens, though, only the best of the last two results counts. So uh, I suppose there is some equality there in the end. It was felt that we needed to examine the ability of the candidates to communicate. Uh, and so... Uh, quality of written communication extended responses were expected in, in questions. So uh, opportunities to stretch the candidate by giving stretch and challenge type questions where they had to write uh, extended answers and we could monitor the quality of written communication. I think the predecessor of this was called SPAG, which was Spelling, Punctuation and Grammar. About 5% of the marks. What does it mean for schools? I... I kind of brainstormed this when I was doing this slide, and these are some of the things which I thought were little points that might happen. Obviously, new specification and content means that teachers got to write new schemes of work, got to write new lesson plans, got to buy new textbooks, uh, got to retrain, update the subject knowledge. So it's quite a dramatic effect on them. Private candidates with little line through it. Controlled assessment is going to be very, very difficult. I had an email from a a teacher the other day uh, who had been approached by a parent who had a child who was home-educated. Home-educated because they were ill and they wanted to do food technology. Food technology is, of course, with 60% controlled assessment. must be done under informal supervision. In other words, under the teacher's eyes. And he's got to sign an authentication slip to say that that's the candidate's work. Now, clearly, where the parent is educating the student and the student is ill at home, it's not possible. It makes the course inaccessible to them. And that is a major problem for a a substantial number of private candidates who want to enter. They've got a lot of obstacles. They've got to find a centre which will accept them, take them on, make the interest for them and host them. They've got to find somebody to authenticate the work and then this controlled assessment obstacle teachers are unaware of controlled assessment. There are teachers out there delivering syllabuses... who just do not understand the difference between coursework... and controlled assessment and the requirements of that. And there, are, there was another uh, inquiry from a teacher of CDT... complaining about con- tr- controlled assessment... not because he wasn't going to do controlled assessment... because he, he was aware of controlled assessment. His complaint was that he'd been talking to other CDT teachers who weren't going to pay any attention to it. There is no way of policing it. The awarding bodies can only police it when we see direct evidence in portfolio material submitted to us that suggests there's been malpractice of some kind. And that's very difficult to detect. It's left to the centres to police this and sometimes down to the individual teacher in the classroom. Now, they tend to do a very good job of that, very good and very professional. But there are clearly some people through ignorance or other reasons (coughs) who will not be able to manage that and will understand the implications, and that doesn't set a level playing field. Supporting INSET, major problem for teachers getting out of school to attend INSET, to update the skills now, being released, the cost of INSET itself. Uh, Obviously, we can do things like provide online INSET and material to help, uh, but it is a problem. Terminal rules and resets they just do not understand the implications of that. A lot of them have come from linear qualifications where unitisation did not exist. So that when they come to uh, make their final entries, they're likely to not understand the terminal rules. In 2012, 2013, what do I do when a centre comes to me and says, well, we've entered all our year 11 students for English GCSE, uh, but they haven't met the terminal rule they are going to fail. Do I then say, we're going to fail all of your 200 and odd students because they haven't met the terminal rule? Um, Again, it becomes very difficult. Obviously, uh, those decisions will come along. Hopefully, the communication about that will be very clear, uh, and there'll be few mistakes. But there are mistakes this summer. We've had late entries, uh, not understanding controlled assessment, not understanding unitisation, etc. So coping with unitisation... when we have some a limited number of unitised qualifications now, science, for example, ICT and a few other ones, but whenever we change from a linear qualification to a unitised qualification, centres misunderstand the entry requirements and often uh, miss entry deadlines. Quality of written communication, um, probably most teachers take that for granted, take it as for granted that the English department is going to deliver those skills. And removal of coursework, Uh, Clearly, that was something that was an easy homework for most teachers to give coursework, work on your coursework or whatever. I suppose it's work on research now. What are the implications for awarding bodies? Well, obviously, we share some of the implications with centres. Uh, We have to supply the support material in-set. We have to set control assessments every year. Uh, and that is for some subjects, that's going to be an additional burden. Uh, setting new standards, and that, that's a very wide topic, setting the, the standard in terms of what we expect from new assessment criteria within specifications, what does uh, the assessment criteria for the controlled assessment mean, explaining that to teachers, setting the standards for the exam papers, carrying over standards from the legacy GCSEs, um, Extreme amounts of change in, our, in terms of our systems and how they work. Changes to our computer systems, our examination processing system, which are extremely costly and time-consuming. Uh, concurrent legacy in new GCSEs. We've got a huge uh, tsunami of assessment taking place in 2010. I'll breathe a great sigh of relief when 2010 summary out the way because of the, the concurrent operation of the two. And the new awards... Obviously, with unitisation, you get problems with awarding at unit level and the qualification outcome and and taking that forward. You get things like regression to the mean coming in and having to make decisions about how you award uh, and award boundaries on unitised qualifications and carry that forward. Uh, Explaining that to centres as well, to centres which are not used to things like UMS and and unitised qualifications, again, is a major headache. The next slide is about questions over time. Now, starting out thinking about, well, I'll get some O level questions, I'll get some GCSE questions, I'll compare the two. When I looked at this kind of topic, if you just put into Google or any of the web engines, dumbing down, you will find masses of links to dumbing down. Um, I think the press are obsessed with it. And it's very easy for somebody who wants to prove that standards have diminished over time or got worse to selectively pick out questions so if I wanted to prove things of dumbing down I would go to a foundation paper on a GCSE pick the g-grade candidates question uh, and then I'll go back to an O-level paper which was aimed at the top 20% of the population and pick a question from that and say look at this isn't this there's a huge difference so it's very easy to prove your point um the institute of chemistry uh, had a go at this, and they picked a load of questions over time. Um, a very scientific study for Institute of Chemistry. There we are. There's some uh, typical chemists from the 1960s, you know. A couple of girls uh, studying chemistry in a traditional way. Um, kind of quotation from a gentleman called Richard Pike there. It um, says... Uh, there is no doubt that the clever pupils are as sharp as they ever were, but most are being stifled by an educational system that does not encourage more detailed problem-solving and rigorous thinking. Not that he prejudged the outcome of his survey in any way. Um, they asked... Eight questions were selected from each of the 1960s, 1970s, 80s, 90s and 2000 and mixed up so the pupils could not identify the, identify the decade. 2016 year olds from 450 schools entered the online competition, which involved sitting a two hour paper made up of chemistry O level questions and GCSE questions from the past five decades. Overall, the students scored 25%, which is pretty depressing, I think, really. Uh, but while the average mark for the questions of 2000 onwards was 35%, for the 1960s it was just 16%. I'm not surprised if, if I was a student from 2000 and I hadn't studied the specification from 1960 and I was asked questions about it and I hadn't studied the content, uh, would I be surprised I couldn't answer the questions? I don't think so, no. So um, I actually thought the questions hadn't changed too much in some ways. There, there was some similarity, and if the candidates had been prepared against the content of the specification, they might have got there. For a science institution, I didn't think the the study was actually very scientific. I thought it was more political than anything else. Um, Again, a biology group who wanted to prove that biology exams were being dumbed down, Uh, they selected this example. This is from an AQA paper, uh, foundation level, kind of aimed at the lowest level uh, of marks, kind of G grade around there. Obviously, just knowing what the nails and the eyes and the, the, the mouth and things actually do. Very simple indeed. But that's the level. Previously, um, the, the GCSE papers... Sorry, the O-levels only top, tested the very top ability candidates. So you never see a question like that. But obviously, GCSE has to cater for the complete ability range. This paper, this question here, is taken from a GCSE paper as well. This is a higher tier paper. And um, from my biology O-level, I think that kind of question would sit quite happily at home with a traditional O-level kind of paper understanding genetics. So uh, it depends what you select. A maths example, uh, that's a, a maths ex- question from a, a, a GCSE paper and a GCSE, uh, sorry, an O-level maths uh, question. I'm told the mathematics of that is fairly similar. The demand is fairly similar so it depends on what you select. I noticed today in the uh, Independent, for example, I don't know, perhaps to pick this up at breakfast. Um, there's a little headline inside which says "Don't trust exam results," and uh, there's a, an article by uh, a professor Murphy from Nottingham Education uh, University or Nottingham University Education Department. Um, it's quite an interesting little article. It basically rambles through saying that. Test actually just take a sample of what the candidate knows and if you asked a different sample you get a different response. So it's not truly indicative of what they actually know or or anything else. But it is. he he ends up by concluding that uh, (coughs) he doubts whether there is any better way of getting more accurate information uh, and he warns against placing too much reliance on the results. So he actually says something better than what we're doing at the moment. There are a couple of other items in here. One is, is talking about uh, whether a, a wording dumb dumbed down to gain market share by making it simpler. Of course, that's nonsense, but that came from somebody from the NUT. So, uh, it's not a, a new argument, and, and Clara will return to that in a moment.
0: Maybe warn against
1: complacency, those two questions, are on different planets. They're are the they? same content, but different well, planets. I, I, I could answer the other question. I couldn't answer the, the maths, but I, I could I'll, I'll take your web for, the for it. The one on the left in five minutes, the one on the right will <coughs> test you. Right, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'll take your web for that. Perhaps <laughs> it was a bad example.
0: Right, moving on to perceptions and purposes. What we're trying to illustrate here is we've got a qualification. It's over 20 years old. Generally, the qualifications are still subject-based, just as they were. It's been very successful in terms of the number of certificates that have been um, awarded, um, and it has been strengthened over time. I mean, you've heard some of the, the rules that have been put in place and the changes that have, tr- Do you know what I mean? have been designed to improve it. Um, and I suppose what we then have to say is, but what are people's perceptions of it? And I think this is where... Um, we actually sort of cut to the chase of what is this for. If we ask teachers, 74% of teachers remain confident in the GCSE system. And we have to be a little bit careful here because some of the survey was about the confidence in in standards and awarding. But 74%, 89% of students think GCSEs are important qualifications to to, to gain. And you might say, well, that's self-fulfilling because schools promote GCSEs, their friends take GCSEs, GCSEs aren't recognised and therefore students would say that, wouldn't they? Um, Interestingly, if you look at the CBI uh, research, generally you come out with um, 53% of employers can't find enough people with the right skills, 40% of employers have concerns about literacy and numeracy levels. There's a new one that's just come out, which is to do with employers being very concerned over um, being being able to access employees with the right level of science and maths. Um, And that's actually a journalism over there. And we get the GCSEs are dumbed down, says the examiner. I mean, there's lots of them. They're a scam to improve the league tables, and they're too generously marked. Okay. OK. And actually, Ofqual does a survey. Uh, This is perhaps a little bit more about the systems, but their survey says that the confidence in the GCSE system, the system of awarding these qualifications, generally remains high and unchanged since 2008. They do it every year. That marking and grading, we would expect to be, um, are the most cited common concerns, but confidence amongst teachers and students remains relatively high. Interestingly, it's less high with uh, parents. 60% of parents have confidence in the accuracy and quality of marking. Um, All parties agree that where we have got problems, it's about inaccurate marking or poorly designed papers and, and coursework that may end up in a student not getting a grade that they deserve. And the majority of teachers believe that GCSE pupils achieve the correct grade. Um, and as I say, the general public are a bit less, uh, less confident. So we, we do have to quest, ask the question, what are the purposes? If we go right back to the beginning, if we looked at GCSEs, were they designed to be a leaving qualification for, for students that have, do not mean, been through an education system and come out with something to show at the end of it. Um, If that's what they are, and if that's what we want them to be, and in fairness, this is no fault of the GCSEs, dare I say, would we not perhaps expect that they would have some of those other characteristics, right? So if that's what we want them to be, if that's what we perceive them to be, would we not perhaps cover a broader curriculum? Okay. Would we not assess the application of knowledge? These are purely, you know, I'm sure you can think of lots. Would we perhaps not include more problem solving? Would we expect some skills and aptitudes to be assessed if that's what we want them to be? If we want them to be a prerequisite for employment, i.e. we want to satisfy those CBI requirements would we not want to focus on employability skills? Would we want some sort of vocational as opposed to subject content? Would we want them to be more job-related? Would we want um, something more to be determined by employers? Uh, And interestingly, when they they increase the leaving age again, the the assessment of the GCSEs won't even come at the end of the schooling. So would we not need to redesign them to come at the end of that period? Uh, And and you might say, well, actually, reading those, you know, do the diplomas sit better in that sphere? Um, But it's what we're wanting these qualifications to do. Uh, If they're a gatekeeper to A-levels, and some people say, and we know, you've got to have achieved, generally, five GCSEs, grades A to C, to be allowed into the sixth form and do do your, do not mean, A-levels. So, in many respects... They might be regarded as a gatekeeper for the A levels. Interestingly, they're not always, it's not always a prerequisite. You don't always have to have done your GCSE in a given subject to be able to take it at further study. So it's not always the case. But if we wanted them to be that, if that's how we were designing them, we would design them differently. I think that's what I'm saying. And we'd link them to the study skills that you need at A level. And if they are performance indicators for schools and teachers, we want them to do, and if we decide that that is their purpose, that is the purpose of GCSE, would we not uh, measure value-added, do you know what I mean, rather than final results, include different performance indicators, perhaps focus on application of knowledge and not acquisition? Uh, so I think what I'm saying is I'm, I'm feeling a bit sorry for the GCSEs now, because we've got this qualification, and in many ways, we are heaping onto it lots and lots of expectations about what we expect it to do and to assign and to signpost in the wider curriculum, that um, in fairness, it probably hasn't been designed to do in the first instance. And that's perhaps where we need to have another look. Um, And if there are minimum standard of sufficiency, so we expect everybody, you know, we look at the targets and we say, we think that this is a minimum standard. This is what people should be uh, able to achieve. It's sufficiency of what and to whom and who's going to define that. Okay. so there we are. The future is now sort of a cross between (laughs) Superman and uh, whatever. But if we look to the future, and all I can do now is just do a little, a, a little sort of a sense check on where the political parties are saying GCSEs. You know, if we're saying we've got this qualification, what do we need to do? What do we see as its overriding purpose? Um, okay, if we look uh, generally just within the Conservative manifesto and what we can, what we can find. Uh, the first thing that they say they do was they give due recognition to IGCSEs. uh, And they've also talked generally about, you know, they believe that qualifications should be made harder, right, in some form. Uh, The Sykes review said actually what we should do, interestingly, is we are confusing what we teach with what we assess. And we're automatically assessing everything that we teach. And do we need to do that? So, do we only need to assess certain essential elements, right? Um, Perhaps maths and and English. Um, Labour, the Labour Party have obviously set out their four pathways of diplomas, GCSE uh, and GCEs, uh, apprenticeships and foundation learning tier, and... Reading through, there's a greater specialism in terms of things like specialist academies. They've set out the four pathways. They have said that they would carry out a review in 2013, certainly of the A-levels. And one would expect that would have uh, some uh, sort of throwback onto, onto the GCSEs. And if I look to the Lib Dems, okay, um, they'd have a, a, a new regulator They'd slim down the national curriculum, they'd create the minimum, they talk of a new general diploma, and that's interesting. But GCSEs are still there, right? They want to bring together the GCSEs and the A levels and other qualifications, do not mean um, vocational qualifications within that. But at the moment, they all look very much as if they want to keep the sort of subject-based GCSE although they might want to use it in, in different ways. So it's early, it's early days. Who knows where it will end? Um, but I suppose I throw it open to you. How do you think GCSEs should evolve in the future? And what should, be, you know, what should they be there and designed to do? This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.